Welcome to this episode of Turdy for Turdy. Make sure you let us know how we're doing. You can either email us at tftpod2018 at gmail.com or hit us up on the Twitter at turdy for turdy. Uh, yeah, so um, I don't really, I forgot how uh, Twitter handles worked for a minute. So uh, let's get started. Welcome. What was oh, that? The Hall- <laughs> Halloween show was last week. My bad. Yeah, that was that was like tales from the crypt. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of Turdy for Turdy. I'm Andrew. That's Maher. Hi. We got a story for y'all. And yeah, so guess what? Chicken butt. Not chicken, but we're actually uh, staying in the realm of baseball for this week. Gosh, dang it! You know, you know that you know how I feel about baseball. I gotta find a way to educate you about America's pastime somehow. Well, you can't shove it down my throat. I do every other time. Oh well, <laughs> winky face. <laughs> yeah. Well, it can't all be about bats and balls. What about gloves? Ah, uh, I mean. It always it is always the best to use protection. What about pine tar? Pine tar? What the hell is pine tar? <laughs> I I do know that like ah, this is like one random baseball thing I have is uh the, like apparently there's a specific mud or dirt that like baseball teams get from this one special place that they they rub the balls with, but it's like it's specific mud from a certain like area. I don't know if you've heard boy, about this. Boy, what the hell are you talking about? I'm talking about dirt you buy, right? And you rub all over the baseballs to break, you know, to just give them a little bit of scruff before they play. Okay. I've I've heard I've heard I've seen it happen. Um I mean, I know what you're talking about, but I didn't know it had to come from a special certain that's place. That's the way it was the only place that had this magical dirt that was perfect for baseball. That's the way I had it explained to me, you know. I, I don't know if it's like a around the country thing or if that's just southern baseball. Baseball, southern but, style. But apparently they do something right because, you know, the place I'm referencing has been pretty decent at baseball for a long time in the, in the college realm. Is this, oh God, are we, is this like a LSU thing? Yeah, man. Okay. Special mud. Blessed by voodoo witch doctor. Out in the bayou. Down on the bayou. They mix it with the uh, Popeye seasonings, and it's extra yummy. All right, well, let's go ahead and get started with our story for tonight. All right, so for today's story, as I said, we're talking about baseball, and I want to take you back to New York, New York, the Big Apple. The city that never sleeps, except for at night. Except, yes, except for at night, or on the day after New Year's Eve. On New Year's Day, I guess is what that day would be. Okay, so, as you probably know, baseball is very popular in New York. There's a little team called the Yankees, kind of like the most popular team I, in the world. 
I did not know about. Are they like the Dallas Cowboys of? Uh, yeah, baseball? but they actually the state. The difference is they actually win championships. But that's only because there's no cap room in uh in baseball, so you can just if you're willing to pay the luxury tax, you can spend like billions of dollars on like old washed up people. The thing is, I could see the Cowboys if there was no cap and. In football, I could see the Cowboys having the biggest payroll and still going five and eleven. Yeah, I mean that's because I'd probably that's because I'd spend it on the people that are currently on their team and not actually bringing in new people. They'd be like, "Yeah, we don't need uh, Tony, not Tony Romo. We don't need a Drew Brees for our team. We need this Dak Prescott guy. He's good." Well, and then they'd probably still have Des Bryant, and he just would drive a boat to the games. He'd make so much money, he'd drive a boat to the games in a city that has He no would water. rent a truck that would pull a yacht to every game. And then in the yacht, he would have strippers and money that just, like, pours out in, like, a comic cartoon stream behind the boat as he's going. I, I, if there's anybody I can actually see doing that, like, he's up on that list. That's Bryant. Just throwing Part up of the, your just throwing New up the Orleans X. Saints. Hey man, who dat baby? Who dat's playing the who days? You know, it's gonna be an interesting week. I really hope they let Des Bryant play. Like at least he's a receiver, so like you don't have to actually know all the plays, especially him because he runs like three routes anyway. <laughs> Short, deep, deeper. <laughs> uh, well, the, I Let's guarantee this is a Andrew guarantee that he's gonna play this weekend because they just put Cam Meredith on IR, so they gotta have somebody. Yeah, that kind of that makes sense why they also went out of their way to get him. It definitely cleared up any questions I had. Anyway, instead of small talk about football, which we were doing before the podcast, let's actually get to the story at hand here. So. I mean, I don't mind talking about the Saints. You know, we can just turn this into a Saints podcast. Yeah, no. Maybe one day I'll read you a Saints story, but probably not. Okay. So in 1957, the Yankees had three baseball teams in the city. You had. Wait, the Yankees? I'm sorry. Had New three York baseball had three teams? baseball teams in the city. Oh, okay. You have the Yankees, the Brooklyn Dodgers, and the New York Giants. However, during that year, things were going to change in in the baseball world. Wait, is this when the New York Giants switched over to be a football team? Yes. Yeah. Is it? Wait, did this Giants baseball team have anything to do with the Yamayuri Giants? Maybe. Well, you have to remember, if you go back to that, that team actually, when they changed their name to the Giants, had just got done touring the United States. And playing baseball teams over here, like U.S. prospect teams. So I'm sure they probably could have gotten that idea from the New York Giants. Like, I wouldn't put it past that. You didn't get my joke. Okay. I thought we were just talking Yamaguri Giants history. I mean, I like talking Japanese baseball as much as the next guy, but, you know. Anyway, that was the year that the Dodgers and the Giants both left for the West Coast. So that left the Yankees as the only baseball team in New York. Wait, so I did not know this about the Giants. I did not know the San Francisco Giants were formerly in New York. I knew about the Dodgers. Yeah, yeah. No, the San Francisco Giants were formerly the New York Giants. Huh. And they left in the same year as the Dodgers. 
that that's another ridiculous thing also i really like as big as new york is having two baseball teams is a lot having like, three baseball teams basically is more. yeah no that's that's the thing is two baseball teams is a lot three is like oh my gosh Three's i mean you see it with their football team now it's basically like the new york giants and the new jersey jets well they both play at new jersey i wonder which one of those teams is more popular in jersey though for some reason i always think the giants know. would probably be the more popular jersey team they just got this whole jersey vibe about them what in the fact that they suck well, Eli Manning's their quarterback, and if there's one quarterback in the league that screams jersey, it's Eli. True. I mean, plus, he, you know, he's not very good at building bridges. Like how we just agreed on that, and it made absolutely no sense. I kind of tuned you out for a minute. Fair enough. Know. Okay. I All I saw when you said Eli was I just saw, like, his forehead, but, like, probably – you know, about like eight feet tall, just a giant forehead and him just standing there stoic and, um, you know, getting sacked every two seconds. This episode has started out really weird. We keep getting so far off track of what we're actually supposed to be talking about. Well, whose fault is that, Mr. Host Man? Probably mine. All right. So luckily, even though both of those teams left, there was a new team coming on the horizon. A team that was created to fill the void of the lost Dodgers. Mainly the Dodgers. The Giants weren't as popular, therefore they're, they didn't really need to be filled. Um, so, this is the... St- Did you say they dodged that? I said that? they dodged that giant void. Um, so, anyway, today we're going to be talking about one of the greatest expansion teams in the history of expansion teams. The 1962 Mets. Oh, shoot. I forgot about the Mets. Most people do. Wait, where are they in at New York? again? Oh, you you set this up to make me think there's only one team in New York, and then I completely forgot about the Mets, which I don't know why, because the Mets were good for a They've while. They've been good recently. I don't know why they just like disappeared in my mind, except for then I thought of the Keith Hernandez and the spitting on people JFK style from Seinfeld. So we're not going to be talking about Keith Hernandez because we're talking about the 62 Mets, but Keith Hernandez is a great Met and may he always be remembered. Rest in peace. I'm pretty sure he's alive. It doesn't matter to understand the story fully. We need to start back at 1957, as I was mentioning earlier. So the top song of that year, and this is the first time, maybe the second time, that the songs in movies actually made sense to me. I think last week I said the same thing, but it just shocks me that these had matched up. Uh, the, no no Acker no. Belk? The top song of 1957 was All Shook Up. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. By Elvis. I'm all shook up. And the best picture winner of that year was Around the World in 80 Days. Is that the, um, uh, Gene Wilder in that one, or am I thinking of something different? Eric Idle? Yes. No, I don't know if it was, was it Eric okay. Idle? I, all I remember is it was about a guy on a hot air balloon. Well, there's been a couple, I think there's been a couple versions, and I, I, feel, I feel like there like was a James Franco one, one or Jackie either. Chan. Was Jackie Chan in Around the World in 80 Days, like one of those? I, 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 I don't. Maybe you're thinking a rat race, but I also don't think he was in that. He wasn't in Rat Race. I would never forget Rat Race. I mean, Man, that's a good movie. I, mean, I need is. to watch that again. 
<laughs> um, I don't know. I don't. I think we're all talking about different stuff. Um, around the world. Yeah, but I okay. Days. Around the world in eighty days. That's uh. Yep, Jackie Chan, you know, Steve Coogan in the two thousand four remake. Ha! Wow, I did not know they made a, a two thousand. Because that was a movie that seems. no one was asking to be remade. I didn't know Steve Coogan was like even like he's been like mediocrely popular for like thirty. Yeah, years. he's still looking for that breakthrough role. Hey, you know he's got that Laurel and Hardy movie, or no, that's not right. He's got that movie with what's his face Hamlet too, and they play. No, oh yeah, well no, that movie with him and um, Shake and Bake Man. You know what I'm talking about? John, John C. Um, Riley. Yeah, John C. Riley. They're doing a. Um, I know. I know the people's names are like super famous. Oh, Abbott comedians. Costello. Evan Costello. No, I don't think it's Alvin Costello. The one guy was fat. One guy was skinny. Yeah, that was Evan Costello. I don't think it's Ollie and something. They didn't. They come up by their first names, so I'm confused. Anyway, we'll 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 circle around to that maybe eventually because now I'm kind of curious. But on May 28th of that year, the major league Major League Baseball's National League voted to allow the Dodgers to move to LA. The blame fell mostly on Dodgers owner Walter O'Malley. A well-known water cooler joke at the time was, if you had a gun with only two bullets and you were in the room with Hitler, Stalin, and O'Malley, who would you shoot? The answer, O'Malley twice. Oh, haven't heard that one before. Whoa. Yeah, I mean, I it would have been, I was for some reason I was expecting you to say, like, yourself twice. <laughs> I mean, that joke has been around for, like, decades, and it just changes with whoever's, like, infamous at the time. I don't know how it's because it's a, like a really like sadistic joke, but like that joke is probably there's probably some guy like saying that before guns even were invented, or like when you had to load a mullet, or I mean not a mullet, <laughs> a uh, a black powder like gun, and be like, if you had two balls, who would you shoot? And uh, and be like, well, I'd shoot myself twice. No, I'm just kidding. I'd I'd shoot Pocahontas and twice. I don't know. I don't know where I was going. I forgot history for a minute. I I shoot Christopher Columbus twice. Boom. O'Malley became the owner in 1950. <laughs> Good During segue. that time, the Dodgers were a very successful team on the field. They were winning pennants, a World Series in 1955 over the Yankees, and they were the only team in the National League that was turning a profit. Can you say pennants when they only won one? No, they won multiple pennants and one World Series. Oh, I thought that was the same no, thing. No, it's not. Pennants is for... Real like, baseball guy like here. Like, if you win the National League, you get a pennant. Oh, well, see, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and pennants meant something different. <laughs> I think you're missing the part of they were the only National League team turning a profit at that time. I mean, hey, you know, every hooker can turn tricks. So, with all that being said, they did have an issue. The team's core was aging and most knew that some sort of rebuild would have to come eventually. If the team quality suffered, the organization would not be able to continue to profit. Their stadium, Ebbets Field, was in bad shape. It had been built in 1912 and hadn't seen many upgrades since. It was also located in a minority area during a time of racial tension. Ticket sales were already suffering and people were not turning out to the games like they had in the past. 
If this team ever became bad, the owner would have a major problem on his hands. So they were going to lose money. That's that's interesting, though, that they would, especially how, what year was this again? 57. Okay, so it's not, there was still the whole segregation thing. Was yeah, but it was New York. 50s, it was right? New York, so you didn't have segregation or Jim Crow laws, but it didn't matter. The North still had racial digit problems on the other Yeah, own. well, the no- North remembers. Um, so O'Malley's first plan was to build a new stadium in Brooklyn. He went to meet with the director of city planning, Robert Moses. And can you believe this, that the city planner of New York was crooked? Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you telling me that, like, public officials in large cities that have a heavy mob presence are crooked? Yeah, it's pretty evident by how long Robert Moses was actually the city planner. It was He was the city planner through several... Mayors, city councilmen, basically everyone else was getting elected to positions and he just stayed in the same position. Well, was that an elected not, position but or is it still like if you get new mayors and stuff, you would think that eventually one of them would like fire him and move on and get their own type of guy in there. But no one ever did. Yeah, I mean I I guess, but maybe he was just so good at city planning, you know, they're like this guy's doing the Lord's work. He made that one building in the middle of New York that like was a ghost channel. And then Sigourney Weaver, like, floated. You know, that was pretty hot. That was pretty hot. So O'Malley's, uh, O'Malley went to Robert Moses with a stadium plan um, that was actually designed by an architect named Buckminster Fuller. And this guy was like a star in terms of architecture. That name sounds really familiar. I was really into architecture for a hot minute. Uh that name sounds really familiar, though. So this was like a really beautiful stadium that he wanted to build. Um, O'Malley wanted his stadium to be built in the athletic, uh, the Atlantic Yards section of Brooklyn. But Moses did not think that um, Brooklyn needed a baseball, te- a baseball stadium and refused to use the Title I provision that would have awarded O'Malley the land to build the stadium. Um, so this was, this was mainly a move of not... So this was a move that he didn't want to do as opposed to a move that he could have done because the way Moses worked was if there was something that he wanted to get done, he always found a way to do it. He would use provisions. He would use, um, Oh, what you would call it? Uh, eminent domain, that kind of stuff to get the land. Would you, would you say he would part the red sea? Yes. Nothing could stop him, not even a burning bush. He spent 40 years in the middle of Manhattan, just wandering around, building cities, building silly stuff. Yeah. I'm actually imagining when you said that, I'm imagining like Charlton Heston wandering around like the middle of Manhattan and is like, We will find a place for your stadium. Like, instead of splitting like the waters and like the Red Sea, it's like a little duck pond. In the Can middle we of Central put the Park, stadium here? Guy no, this is not him. the spot. The man that fell from heaven is just some guy throwing like bread at birds. <laughs> uh, instead, what Robert Moses did was he offered uh, he offered O'Malley the land that would eventually be Shea Stadium, where the Mets play in Queens. So he said, "No, you can't put the Brooklyn Dodgers in Brooklyn, but I'll let you put them in Queens." 
Oh, you know, that, that New York likes to put teams that are called another, like, city in, like, a not that city or state. Um, so, actually, funny little side thing for this, where the Brooklyn Nets play, the Barclays Center, that's actually built where O'Malley wanted to build his stadium at now. Well, that's a big, like, screw you, like, you know, 80 years later or whatever long that was. Yeah, so... The reason why he wanted to put this stadium in Queens is he had some corporate landowners that he was trying to please, and he figured that would be an easy way to get their land sold quickly. I mean, that makes sense. So, needless to say, O'Malley wasn't really happy with this result, and he refused uh, the land in Queens. And he commented to um, a reporter, he said, I want to be in Brooklyn. These are the Brooklyn Dodgers. If I'm going to be outside of Brooklyn, I could be 30 miles outside or I could be 3,000 miles outside of Brooklyn. It's not going to matter to me. Um, that's a, that's a pretty big mile differential. Um, <coughs> yeah, well, actually, yeah, it's pretty close to 3,000 yeah, exactly. miles. Like at least a wink, two. a wink. <laughs> so what Moses did not know was that two years prior to that statement – L.A. Councilwoman Roz Wyman had offered the Dodgers a new stadium if they agreed to move out west. At the time, O'Malley had uh, refused. But now, since he was slighted by the city of New York, he was inclined to look into that offer a little more. So he asked the National League to approve um, the move of the Dodgers to L.A., the National League, because they were kind of having money troubles, they were pretty quick to accept that, and they're like, "Yeah, we can give that a shot." So they only had wait yeah. it, at the time. What teams were already on that that side of the country? Uh, there weren't really any teams on that side of the country. Like the farthest, the farthest that direction were like uh, the probably the St. Louis Cardinals, actually. Okay, because that's what I was going to ask, because it's like when we talk about old baseball, it seems like it was all like up in the the east area. Yeah, east or middle of the country. The, the Middle East. So the only stipulation that was given to O'Malley about the move was that he would need to find another team to agree to move out west with him, because they were like, we can't just have one team out in the middle of L.A. and no one around. We like need to create like a rivalry. We need to create interest on the West Coast. That way, the expansion sticks. All the way. Also, can you remember, or can you imagine how terrible it would have been to like have to make that like cross country flight to play a bunch of teams at that time if you were just kind of on your own, like especially with air travel being the way it was. Like here, tie yourself under this lawn chair. We're about to take off. Exactly, and you needed. With like the cabin completely full of and smoke, and you needed a kind of like a, a rivalry between. You know, you have to kind of have some sort of rivalry in baseball, like the Red Sox-Yankees. Um, well, Sox and Yanking have, you know, they're, they're that's a tale as old as time. Yeah, I mean, they were trying to build something like that. And so O'Malley turned to Horace Stoneman, who was the owner of the Giants. Uh, the Giants Stadium, the Polo Grounds, which is a really famous old stadium, was in worse shape at that time than the Dodgers Stadium, Ebbetsfield. They had already been trying to move out of there for a couple of years, and the offer to head west was very uh, intriguing to the Giants owner. Stoneman quickly accepted um, an offer from San Francisco, which cemented the relocation of the two teams. 
the plans to relocate were kept secret until the end of that season, even though it had been done at the beginning of the season. Nobody said anything until the end of the season. And just very quickly, if you were just a fan, there was very little time between the announcement that they were moving to the move. So it's almost like it happened overnight, kind of like when the um, Browns moved to Baltimore. Wait, so how do they do that, though? Because you probably have season ticket holders, like, looking to renew and stuff like that. And it's like, oh, by the way, like, it sounds like they're literally packing up their bags in the middle of the night and, you know, Nick, Saban- Nick Sabaning it out of It was like the Browns when they moved to, to Baltimore, you know. It was like a couple of weeks within people started to hear about it, and then the move happened almost as quickly as people heard about it. So uh, both teams were gone, and Ebbets Field was torn down in 1960. When Ebbets Field was torn down, this was like three years after the move, but still. When the, Ebbets Field was torn down, the wrecking ball that was used was painted like a baseball. Uh, ah, that's a clever. The same wrecking ball would later be used on the polo grounds in 1964, so New York just kept a baseball-painted uh, wrecking ball to tear down baseball-related structures. I I can't imagine some dude just like paying that because wrecking ball's black, yes. right? So you got to paint the whole thing white, and then you got to paint the laces on it. And like, there's just some dude like, "What are you doing? Oh, painting the wrecking ball? Like, why? Oh no, that'd be cool. We're tearing apart a baseball stadium." Yeah, the first you know? question should always be why. Um, so two legendary teams and stadiums were both gone from New York, but as I said earlier, don't fear that. Because a new team was coming to town, and that was the New York Mets. So I, I just find it weird that they had three teams at one point and tried didn't even really try to keep and really like aided in the leaving of those two teams and then brought in a whole nother team. Well, I don't think you could say they really aided in the like them leaving. They tried to give them land, but um like shitty land. I don't think they thought that those teams had the balls to leave, though, is what I think happened. They were just like, nah, they're not going to leave. Just like nobody said the Chargers had the balls to move San Diego and, you know, piss off their entire fan base and then not even be able to fill up a soccer stadium, even though they're actually playing really good the last Yeah, this worked years. out better for the Dodgers and Giants than anything the Chargers have done recently. So shortly after the Dodgers and Giants left town, the mayor of New York created a four-man committee to consider the possibility of bringing National League Baseball back to New York. They were really making a push to find a new team, mainly because this um, it really divided the fan base in baseball. Like, if, Okay, think about it this way. If you were a Dodgers fan, you were like raised to hate the Yankees. If you were a Giants fan, you were raised to hate the Yankees. If you were a Yankees fan, you were raised to be indifferent towards those other two teams. So, <laughs> if, if you're the like a Dodgers fan and the only team that you have in your city anymore is the Yankees, you're going to be like, ah, oh, no, I'm not going to watch that or root for them, so screw that. And so that's what they found is that people were so unhappy about it because – it didn't make everybody Yankees fans. It just made everybody hate the Yankees kind of more. That that is has a lot of similarities to the Cowboys and Texans, in my opinion, which the Texans already had like a prior fan base um, with the Oilers, but still, it's like 
if you're a person that was stuck in Texas and you didn't like the Cowboys, boom, you got to Yeah, and I, I have a friend that was actually uh, that I went to college with that was a Tennessee Titans fan because he was so against just like switching allegiances to the Cowboys that he just followed the Oilers up to Tennessee and he's still a Titans fan to this day. He didn't jump on the Houston bandwagon when they came back. Well, it was pretty easy to be a Titans fan when they first Oh, yeah, moved. they were good. Isn't that sad, though? The Oilers technically could have been in a Super Bowl, like, in 99. Because, I mean, it would have been the same team. Yeah, I mean, it. the way those things work is, is You weird. never know. And you, you kind of wonder, like, what actually warranted the move. Like, I don't know. It, the whole thing with professional sports is just, you know up and moving is weird and i don't think i'll ever get it so the four-man committee included attorney bill shea he was a very prominent lawyer in the new york area and he really took like a, a very big role in getting this new team created so shea announced that there would be a third major league to begin play in 1961 and that one of those teams would be in new york this league was called the continental league ever heard of it um, no, but I, I, you know, I've heard of the breakfast. Is that related? Uh, it might as well be because the Continental League disbanded before it ever got started. But, um, they promised that four of the proposed teams would be split between the AL and the NL. Also, I'm, I'm really glad that you said that the Continental League actually never really technically existed because in my head I was thinking, like, could that be a it real was. thing? Like, I'm confused. So the Mets were formally awarded to the National League, uh, even though they weren't the Mets at the time. Uh, the, the New York team was officially given to the National League, and ownership and the, the team was bought by Mrs. Joan Payson, and she was the original owner of the Mets. So the Mets name was chosen over names like the Skylines, the Burrows, like donkeys, but you know it's like the five Burrows. The in wait, there's is that what is that what the five five Burrows in in New York are named after? I thought it was named after like neighborhoods. It's, so it's, it's named, named after, after neighborhoods. Like it's spelled differently, but then and to be all cutesy, they were going to make the team name the Burrows, like B U R R O, as in donkeys. They were trying to get cute with it. That's a little too much effort. Uh, other names were the NYBs. I don't know what that is. The Continentals, the Avengers, the Jets, and the Islanders. And then, of course, later the Jets Whoa, and the Islanders the, would be a football team and a hockey team, respectively. So they saved those the names. the Avengers. Yes, the Avengers. That's interesting. Was that like Marvel related, or did that even exist yet? I, yeah, that existed, but it wasn't Marvel related. I mean, Avengers a word before Marvel. It's not like. Marvel created Avengers. I know, but using the word, I don't know. But like, what are they avenging? Like, they're avenging the death of the the Dodgers. I'm just really curious where Avengers came from. Like, what were they avenging? But um, yeah, those are like. So is the Continental supposed to be like a reference to the Continental League? I believe so. Okay. Uh, The name the Mets came from was a shortening of the corporate name of the team, which was the New York Metropolitan Baseball Club Incorporated. I always forget, like, what that Mets is is like a word other than just Mets. Yeah, that's what that was for. So the circular logo was designed by a sports cartoonist named Ray Gatto. The logo has a small piece of each of the five neighborhoods in New York showing that it represents the city as a whole. So which one has a picture of Daniel Day-Lewis on it? 
Uh, that would be and and Leo. That would be very small in the Betts logo. You can see two little guys with handlebar mustaches standing and waving. And and then they drink your milkshake. Uh, well, whatever. The colors blue and orange. I thought this was cool. I didn't actually know this. The colors blue and orange. The Mets team colors represent both the Dodgers and Giants um, by combining both of their primary colors. Those. Wow, that's actually Those pretty cool. Those colors also are the official colors of the state of New York. So, it, like, it's like the perfect colors for a team in New York. I did not know that that uh, those were New York colors. Is that why a bunch of stuff in New York is that color? Like the Syracuse? Yes, and the Knicks. That's men? the state of New York's color scheme, yes. Huh. Uh Things in the first know. expansion draft, which took place on October twenty October tenth, <laughs> October twenty October tenth of nineteen sixty one, the Mets spent around one point eight million dollars on twenty two total players. Is that a lot of money? I back feel then? like I feel like it, it sounds is. like a lot like of money. Lot. Okay, I mean I know inflation. Like back in that day, you know you could buy a candy. Now you can't even buy one player stupid. for that much. One player, please. <laughs> they would take four players from the two former New York teams. They also hired Casey Stengel to be the first manager. So hiring Stengel was actually the right move for the team. He had won 10 pennants and seven World Series with the Yankees. Uh, he also had played for the two other teams in New York at times in his career as well. So he was a hero in, when it comes to New York baseball at the time. He was also he was also known as a brilliant manager. He had no fear about changing the lineup and moving players around. Uh, he was in his seventies when he got this job, and being that old and with that much experience, he was sort of a quote machine. And we're gonna go we're gonna hear some of his quotes through the show. I really love quotable coaches. Like they're my favorite my favorite coaches uh, that all of all time. No matter how good they are at coaching. If they got some gems in there, that's why I like Mike Gundy. That's why I like Les Miles. Well, I have other reasons for like Les Miles, and that's why I can tolerate Steve Spurrier because they just they they throw out some some gems. Oh, and that's why Mike Leach is like slowly becoming, you know, up, up in my list of. Oh, favorites. you're gonna like this guy. When he first took the job, he said it's a great honor to be joining the Knickerbockers. Now. The Knickerbockers were a baseball team at one time in New York. They just happened to be a team during the Civil War era, so it was a knock at his age. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I thought it was going to be a reference to, you know, the yeah. basketball team that shares the name, but um, that hadn't existed yet. So Stengel was not the only person on the team that was a little past his prime. The outfielders, Frank Thomas, Gus Bell, and Richie Ashburn, Ashburn um, were a little little old for for being on a, like a brand new team. How old were they? So they had combined, they had 19 total children and their combined age was 102 years old. Dang. One of those, that's like as many kids as Rogers Camardi had. (laughs) Oh, got him. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think child support people got him. True. It's very true. How would you like to like make like millions and millions of dollars and then still like spend eighty percent of it in child support because you have like twenty kids over like ten different women or something stupid like that? Do you that? still have to pay child support if you can't remember the child's name? 
I mean, legally, you probably that's what do, I would make but, my argument know. if I was Rogers Cromartie. <laughs> He's probably got like a roster. You, you remember keeps. that clip from Hard Knocks, right? When he was like trying to name them off and then he started getting a little confused and like looking up towards the sky and trying to remember the names of some of them. I, I'm, you know, I don't want to like, I don't want to like be rude to the guy because it seems like he actually does care about his family. The fact that he mentioned he has that many kids. I've never heard but, him missing a like, child support payment or something. So, I mean, at least that's somewhat yeah. honorable. I'm not going to judge him for that, but yeah. But like when you have that many kids, like having to list off names seems like it'd be really hard, but I bet you if he saw them, he would know who they were. It's like a class roster. Yeah. Like he probably like, Imagine somebody like flipping up the wall. You want to see a picture of my kids, and then it just like hits the ground, like some kind of comic thing. <laughs> or it's like when it, like when clowns pull the cloths out of their pocket, like their handkerchief. It just keeps going. <laughs> uh, so the roster. It'd be at least if he at least he has money, so that makes that makes it a little you easier. Know, having yeah, that means having like your own like you know seven on seven football team a little more manageable. So the roster seemed to be built more for nostalgia than actual winning. Stango was in rare form when spring training started. He would give the younger players advice like, "Get yourself in shape now. You can drink during the season." <laughs> <laughs> or he who stands up to bat is all right. He who sticks his fanny out isn't worth a road apple. What the hell is no a road clue. apple? Is these like old timey things? I'm not even sure these are old timey things of the '60s. I think he's just insane. Uh, like what the hell? Like sticks his fanny out? I mean, like, is he calling him fancy men? I think he means like a guy that stands up tall gets more power than a guy that sticks his butt out. I don't. Honestly, I can't tell you. These are just quotes I got from a guy that actually was on that team during spring training. Uh, the nutty phrasing and language would become known as Stengalese. <laughs> so he had his own language. Oh, Sayings man. like, so this here fellow on second base, let me tell you, he was not as horse apple as he was Konaki, which was amazing for a left-handed dentist, which I did not get to be. What the hell are the words he's even saying? Oh, also a road apple is a horse manure, but I also thought a horse apple was. Horse I'm manure. assuming a horse so, apple is manure. What's a konkaki? K a n k a k e e. What? The word he used was konkaki. K a n k a k e e. Well, that's a, apparently a city in Illinois. But what? How did? What was the terminology? So let's let's go over this again. It? Now that we know what that was. So this here fellow on second base. Let's break this down like part by part. So he's talking about a man standing on second base. Let me tell you, he was not as horse apple, which is manure, right? As he was in Kankakee, which was amazing. So basically, he's saying this guy standing on second base, on second base, wasn't as shitty as he was in a town in Illinois. Illinois. Why did I say Illinois? Illinois. That's my favorite. And then the second part of it was, which was amazing for a left-handed dentist, which I did not get to be. I can't decipher that second part. Well, see, I thought horse apple was manure. But then I look it up, and uh, the, everything that shows up is these things called uh, Osage oranges, which just look like 
oranges that have a really bad case of like acne they actually look very unappetizing he's gotta mean like it's gotta be the same thing as a road apple in the way he said it that because the first part when you break it down makes sense but i don't have a clue what a left-handed dentist has to do with anything it's probably just a terrible dentist but like hey so is the suicide rate higher amongst the left-handed dentist than right-handed dentist no clue but he didn't get to be one so he wouldn't know either so sayings like that were pretty common at spring training and throughout his career. And at this time in his life, he was kind of the perfect mix of like managerial genius, but senile old man. Those are the best coaches, Think, in my uh, opinion. When, when they're like old enough to not care anymore, but you can still tell they really know what they're doing. Think of doing, like Coach Madden. But still with, don't uh, care. Not John Madden, but Madden, the baseball coach for the Cubs, but like crazier. Oh well, you you know yeah, my. Yeah, I don't know who that is. You you know my knowledge. He, he level says of some pretty baseball, wacky so. stuff too, though. He could also be considered sort of mean to his players at times. Uh, during the same the same uh, spring training, he banned sex, and then one time he introduced uh, two of the worst players to the media, and said that they were going to be stars. And then he had them cut a few days later, and they never were heard from again. Like their baseball careers were over. that that there's no way that if you cut people within a couple days that you you would know that when you sign them that there was if oh yeah you're just being an ass and then and then to build them up like that oh my gosh that's you know that's that's a real that's real horse apple right there (laughs) he also had little moments of kindness too uh, one time a middle-aged man came up to him and asked uh, and told him that he had played for him in the past. The man had played for Stengel in the past. The man had his son with him, so Stengel told the kids stories of his father uh, of what his father had done during his career and promised the boy a contract when he grew up. As the father and son walked off, Stengel rolled his eyes and shrugged. He had no clue who they were. Wow, but that that's kind of impressive because um for the, the, the like father to be like, Oh man, like he either knew that guy was bullshitting the whole time and just was like, At least this guy tried or he uh he actually believed the the BS, which that's really iffy, you know. Pride will make you pretend to know. I mean, a lot you of could. Stuff. I guess when you've coached as long as he has and have had so many different memories, like you could probably fake it, be like, "Oh yeah, he once got a hit at a really special time and won us the game" or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just feel like with baseball, it's really hard to be super generic because of all the different scenarios that can happen. Or the, like you said, or like, the dad knew he was lying been... and was just like, oh, he's trying to not embarrass me in front of my son. I'll take this little win while I can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at least he's, I mean, he could have been making the whole thing up. He could have not actually played for him. So the team would play at Polo Grounds while Shea Stadium was being built. On the eve of the Mets' first game, club president George Weiss said he believed that this team could finish 500. Stengel also chimed. That's that's a really bad. You know things are bad when that's your observation. Stengel also also chimed in with optimism as he said the Mets would be amazing. So one guy saying five hundred and one guy saying amazing. There's really there's a big middle ground right there. So the season began in St. Louis where the Mets lost eleven to four. 
Oh, well, you know, that that's a really good baseball score. Things did not improve much from there. On April 29th, the 0-9 Mets would get their first win over the 10-0 Pirates. Um, during that time frame, they lost a few of those games by one run and some of, the, uh, some of those games in double digits. So they were uh, pretty inconsistent. Uh, the team eventually worked its way back to 12-19 and 19 by May 20th. This is yeah, the Mets yeah, we're talking still? About the Mets. They were 12 and 19 by May 20th. Following a sweep of the Brewers, the Mets lost their next 17 games. Ow! Like, that's that's really bad. Like, even for baseball, 17 losses in a row. Like, you got to be playing some people coming off, like, some, some terrible travel trips or, you know, just, you know, being at the end of their, their pitching cycle. Yeah, you feel cycle. like you would accidentally like, win one of those. You you would think you would accidentally win. Like, even terrible teams accidentally would win one game in that stretch. Like, what was the biggest losing streak we've had in the last couple of years? Mm, probably around 17 games. Um, okay. I'll look real quick. Uh, while I'm looking this up, just to add to some, uh, some information to that, uh, they also lost 11 straight in July and 13 straight in August during that season. Dang, that's that's a lot of losses, but it also really puts in perspective like how many games they play. Like that was probably them. That was what them lose. Wait, does that mean? Uh, wait. So you said they lost seventeen straight. So is this like then they won one and then lost all those other games intermittently? Yeah, yeah. They were. I mean, they were winning and losing. Those were just their biggest losing streaks. That's a lot of games. Right in one now, month. the biggest, uh, the most recent, like big losing streak was 13 games by the Twins in 2016. The Astros lost 15 straight in 2013. So it's not unheard of. It's just not very common. I I actually knew about. Well, I knew the Astros were pretty pretty bad for a while. So that one actually seems believable. But I know the Twins struggled for a bit too. But, yeah, that just seems – but, like, I actually kind of was aware of how bad the Astros actually were. I didn't really pay attention to the Twins, but, like, that – so that means you're really, really bad. Uh, their biggest winning streak of the season was three games. Wow. You know, uh, that's impressive. At one point during the season, the team was playing so bad that uh, Stengel asked the locker room, can't anybody here play this game? Uh, as the season went on, the team continued to try to make transactions to improve. On May 9th, the team bought the rights to a player named Marv Throneberry, who would go on to become a Mets legend. Was he part of the uh, Wild Throneberries? He, oh, he was wild. So let's talk about Marvelous Marv. Oh, oh boy. The fact that he is a nickname, and then the fact that like you got all giddy when you started talking about him, like makes me feel so excited. So Marv grew up in Tennessee and was a two-time All-City baseball player at Southside High in Memphis, Tennessee. His brother Faye played for the Red Sox, and they offered Marv uh, Thronberry a spot in their organization. He ended up signing with the New York Yankees instead of May of 1952. For the first two years, he played in the outfield, but was moved to first base by the Kansas City Blues. In 1950, which is a minor league team, in 1954, he led the Blues with 21 home runs. The next year, he led all of AAA with 36 home runs and 117 runs batted in. 
That September, he was called up to the Yankees by their manager, Casey Stengel. He made his debut against the Red Sox as a pinch runner and got his first to plate appearance in the seventh inning. He hit a bases-loaded double to score two runs and finished the game two, of two, with, two for two with three RBIs. In that same game, his brother Faye had struck out three times. However, with all this success that he had when he came up as a pinch hitter, he was still moved back to the minors in 1956. Uh, he would also spend the 1957 season in the minors, but in both of those seasons, he hit over 40 home runs. Uh, in both of, in both those seasons, he hit over 40 home runs apiece. Wait, was this with the Blues or was this with the Yankees? No, this was with uh, just bouncing around some minor league teams. So okay. this begs the question, I hope you're asking the same thing. If he was smashing it so well in the minor league and playing so good, why was he not getting called up to the majors? Well, that that's why I asked the question I did, because it's like, okay, he's doing this, and why is he doing that still in the minors? We'll, we'll get to that. So Thronberry went back to the majors in 1958. He was mainly uh, used as a pinch hitter and first base defensive substitution. This was with the Yankees still. He hit 227 during that season with seven home runs and 19 RBIs. So not great numbers, but respectable. He also got a World Series win with the Yankees in that season. He saw action in 60 games. After the 1959 season, he was included in a package trade with the Kansas City Athletics that brought Roger Maris to New York. Thronberry was then traded to the Orioles midway through the 1961 season. In Baltimore, Marv was used as a pinch hitter or in, in right field. He still really hadn't found his way to being an everyday starter, but when he was traded to the Mets after 17 games in the 1962 season, he was finally, after all these years, going to get his opportunity to shine. Man, he went all over the place. Yeah, he was a journeyman. I mean, he was, he was a journeyman. He didn't really find a spot he fit until the Mets. I know what you were trying to say, but the way you said it made me like think that you, you said it in a way like, he was a journey, <laughs> yeah, man. He was a journeyman, is what I meant to say. So the legend. So he was an yes, electrician. He was a journeyman electrician. Um, everywhere he went, he fixed the stadium lights, and that's what he was known for. And he was marvelous I mean, at it. So marvelous, niche, right? Marv. So the legend of marvelous Marv really began when he went to the Mets. He became the face of the lovable loser 1962 Mets, which the Cubs also used that nickname, but the 1962 Mets kind of carried it along too. Okay, I was going to say, like, I didn't think that was a Mets nickname. And I don't really know. Like I said, I, I got a lot of missing pieces with baseball, but I just really didn't think that was associated Yeah, that was just Mets. like that, that those first couple of seasons, mainly that very first season, but that was mainly a Chicago Cubs thing. So what made Marv Thrumberry so um, famous is that there were a lot of exaggerated stories about him that were, were reported um, during that season. Ooh. One of these famous stories, and probably the most famous, happened in a game against the Cubs on June 17th. The story went that Marv hit a triple into right the right field bullpen, but was called out for missing first base. Uh, not touching the bag. Casey Stengel came out of the dugout and began to walk towards the umpire. One of his coaches stopped him and said, don't bother, Case. He missed second, too. 
So, so you did step oh. on first or second, just ran to third and missed the other two bases. This is a pro baseball player. So, but these are like stories. You made it sound like these are rumors and like legends and stuff. Like this would be actually documented facts, Correct. right? And I'll get to that in a second. So Stengel, uh, in the story, Stengel responded by saying, well, I know he touched third because he's standing on it. (laughs) 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 What an ass, man. That guy was an ass. In a a 1980s interview, Marv was asked about this event. He said, don't remember whether I touched that base or not, but I I do know that Casey never came out of the dugout, but it makes for a better story that way. Wait, so did he... He ended up being out on that play. Like, they have the record that he was out on that play, so he definitely didn't touch the base. And that's not what he's arguing. He's talking about he doesn't remember if he missed second base. He definitely missed first, and he's saying that the manager didn't come out of the dugout, but he's mainly arguing that Casey Stengel never came out of the dugout. He really... Okay, he really doesn't try to defend for... himself about not touching the base. Like he says, I don't know if I touched second or not, but I definitely was out on that play. <laughs> that yeah, that's a that's a. What weird makes one. this so weird is that there's another version of this story that has also been in newspapers, saying that it was the umpire that told Casey Stengel to go back to the dugout because of his bad running. So it's really weird that this guy has <laughs> bad ha- running. Like, is it you slow as shit? You better Isn't it on. weird, though, that there's, like, exaggerated stories of something that can be proven in 1962? Like, it's like tall tales of baseball. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, that's, like, a legit stat that would exist, and I, you, anybody could probably look it up to see if he was out or not in that play. But, like, what does it matter if, if he missed second base? Well, it's pretty bad if you, you know, when pull out a out triple anyway. and you miss first at second base. Like, you're just running wildly on the diamond. Oh, I mean, yeah, the fact that he was only out because he missed the bases is ludicrous, and you should be ridiculed extensively for that. But, like, at the end of the day, he's out, and they have record that he was out, and they would have record that he was out starting at first base, correct? correct? But what makes this even worse is that the next guy up came up and hit a home run, and they lost by one run, so it cost him the game. Oh, no, that would have been a, at least a two-run. So... Yes, math. It's so fun. Thrumberry also was um, talked about another story he had been asked about recently, like in that same interview. He said, a reporter called me a few weeks ago and asked me if a story he heard from Richie Ashburn was true before he printed it. Richie said, we were playing at Dodger Stadium and Ron Fairley's bat slipped out of his hands, went into the stands and hit Casey Stengel's wife, Edna. <laughs> of course his wife's name is then Edna. two weeks later at the polo grounds the bat the bat slipped out of ron Fairley's hands and again hit edna in the stands <laughs> richie ashford played for the team so this is a player that told a reporter this story that the same guy hit the same woman twice in the stands by a bat that flew into the stands that's impressive richie really. also said that marv was so fixated on this event that when choo-choo coleman that was the guy's name yeah, I feel like we need to really talk about the whole nickname of Choo Choo. Uh, or if that was his birth uh, name. He said that when Choo Choo Coleman threw a pickoff throw to first, it hit Marv right between the eyes, causing the ball to go into the outfield. A runner scored because it was counted as an error. Wait, so the ball hit him yeah, in the so face? Yeah, so he was... 
like in the forehead. <laughs> yes. So he was like, he was like standing at the base. Like, walked it off. He was standing away from the base, watching this woman get hit with a flying bat. And because he wasn't moving, the pitcher was like, oh, I'll pick him off because he's not paying attention. And his pickoff throw hit Throneberry in the face, bounced into the outfield, and the Mets scored a run off of it. Wait, so um, he was at bat? No, he was on first base. He was on oh. first base watching the event happen. Like he should have gone back to tag first because of everything that happened, but he was so stuck looking at the event that he forgot to be on first. So then the pitcher threw a pickoff throw to first, but the throw was kind of errant and hit him in the face, and then it caused an error that scored a run. So he ended up getting points out well, of it. Well, the Mets anyway. did. Yeah, the guy on that was on third scored. Wow. And I'm sure he was like kind of like concussed. So he said, uh, in this interview, he says, I said, are you going to tell me you believe that? But go ahead and print it. And he did. It's just stories like that that have given <laughs> me my reputation. What I love wow. about this That's... is that he, whether intentionally or not, he did not deny that story in that statement. He just said, are you going to believe that? You can print it. That's that's a really like ballsy response in a way. It's just basically saying like, "Come at me, bro!" Like, the, he's not denying or admitting anything. But he's also he's just he's somehow not saying anything, but saying it in a way that makes it seem like that could have actually happened. But we have no way of you know at this point we have no way of knowing. But you think there would have been like you know fifty thousand people that saw it happen? Yeah, it's really weird that it's just like I don't understand how tall tales happen in the '60s, but whatever. I, I don't understand how... Yeah, I mean, there was stuff televised back then. Like, sports were televised. And, and like, you're telling me that of all the people in the game, nobody actually saw him get decked in the face with the ball? You would remember that. Like, that would be something you'd remember. If I was watching a baseball game, and, like, I'd be half out of the game, you know, not paying attention because baseball is boring, and then I see some dude get whacked in the face I while like staring in the opposite direction watching a bat go into the stands, I would remember that. But what do I know? Well, whether or not these stories are true, it doesn't change the fact that Marv was not playing great baseball when he started for the Mets at first base. By the end of the season, he had racked up 17 errors with a fielding uh, percentage of .981, a number that would not even be matched until uh, Cesar Cedeno did it for the Astros in 1979. Now, I know your baseball knowledge is not fantastic, but it's really hard for first basemen to get errors, and 17 of them is just an absolutely ludicrous number. Well, so I was going to say that, like, first baseman, though, somehow that's usually, isn't that usually like a, I'm not going to say weaker position, but it's a less mobile Yeah, in the field, you don't really move, and you usually put your weaker fielders at first base. Like, because everything you're catching is somebody throwing you the ball f- and, for the most part. Really. Yeah, and that yeah. held up as, like, the worst fielding percentage uh, for a first baseman in history for 18 years. And there haven't been many people that have come close to it since. I'm pretty sure, what was that first baseman a while back that was, like, pre, like, he was, like, borderline mor- morbidly obese uh, that played? Prince Fielder? Did he play yes. first base? Then I guess it was him. Sandoval. Oh yeah, that was when he. That, that was when he. That uh, okay. I'm thinking about uh, Fielder and Ortiz because then uh, Fielder play in the whatever league had. Uh, 
uh, pinch hitters, and then when he got or designated hitters, and then he got traded out of that, and then he had to play a base, and people were like, "What?" Yeah, the heck? he plays for a couple of teams. I think he he did play for the in the American League at first. Uh, so these exaggerated stories made Marv a star. The fact that his initials also spelled out Met helped take his local stardom even farther. Well, Thrumberry had a fan club that had around 5,000 members in it. Wait, what was Marvin's middle name? Uh, you know, I never really cared to look. Let me look. Bad, bad radio here while I look this up. It was Eugene. Eugene. This whole show is bad. Eugene, that's a very... Uh old name that is it's almost as bad as edna yeah edna is like i don't know i if i ever saw a young edna which i don't think we'll ever see a young edna mostly because it's like not the 50s anymore but if i ever saw a young edna i would probably like literally like spend an hour like questioning her about it's her like name. uh what's that guy um skip bayless's wife is named ernestine Oh yeah, no. Well, he is. Uh, yeah, he's not young. He just probably had a lot I'm of work. I'm just saying, done. like Ernestine, that sounds like an old like Red Dead Redemption Two type of name. Oh, let's not bring that. up. Everybody's talking um, about yeah, it no, right that's now. Definitely, you gotta talk definitely, about it. That's definitely. This definitely sounds like a like a like a somebody who was alive during the like or, uh, during World War Two name. Um, shirts were seen around the ballpark that had Vram written on him, which was Marv spelled backwards. And fans chanted, um, had a chant for him that said, Cranberry, Strawberry, we love Throneberry. Wow. Uh, what would happen when they got a, or what would happen if they would have had Daryl Strawberry? Can we talk about the, that? None of this makes sense. Like, I hope you've noticed that all this Throneberry stuff that I just talked about, the 5,000 person fan club, Vram, cranberry strawberry we love throneberry none of that made sense like it just blew my mind it's like he, nothing nothing about that's funny or witty he sounds he sounds like a middle of the pack like kind of mediocre franchise player that they can afford to keep around because he doesn't necessarily he he's not eating up a lot of money kind of situation and i don't I guess he has enough of a personality that people love him, but yeah, I, I feel like there's nothing to necessitate people have that many people having chance about him and all that jazz. It it made no sense, which is part of why I loved this story because I was just like, this is the most mediocre. Like he's not a good player, and this is the like the lamest stuff that people could celebrate about him. Yet he was popular. Well, maybe that that was just one more error. Uh-huh. So, the star burned out pretty quickly on his career because the next season he was replaced and eventually moved back to the re- the minors. And once he fell out of the majors, he retired pretty quickly after that. I was going to say, were people still chanting that they want Throneberry well, back? Even if they weren't chanting oh, it, God. they got him back. Because a decade later, Marvelous Marv was back in the spotlight. Wait, he, you said he retired, so he came back? After retiring? Just listen. A decade later, he was back in the spotlight. He began to appear in Miller Lite commercials. Oh. He he made fun of himself in the commercials, and his most famous tagline was, If I do for a light what I did for baseball, I'm afraid their sales will go down. 
Oh man, that's some self awareness right there. You gotta respect. Uh, that, I ended up way. enjoying this guy the more I went into it, even though he had like nothing special about him. And it, he 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 just seems like he's. I don't know. He's got some kind of like evil or not evil, but like some kind of like weird luck spell on him. Because none of this sounds. None of this makes sense. Like there's no contributing factors that that seem like they would make this guy this. Likeable. I know. I don't understand it. Uh, he had another commercial that got really famous where it was a Miller Lite commercial. It had a bunch of celebrities in it. And at the very end of the commercial, he popped up holding a Miller Lite and said, I still don't know why they asked me to do this commercial. <laughs> uh, wow. That I, 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 I am about to start like making some thrum or uh, whatever name is Throneberry chants. This is amazing stuff. Like, I can't imagine that level of self-awareness in any professional athlete, retired or otherwise. Um, a columnist named Jimmy Breslin uh, one time wrote that having Marv Throneberry play for your team is like having Willie Sutton work for your bank. And Willie Sutton was a famous American bank robber. <laughs> I was wondering, I was like, I don't know if I get this reference. This it was an old-timey reference, then, but still, that was what he was getting yeah. at. You've been playing too much Red Dead. Hey, I thought we weren't going to bring that up. Well, you the one Everybody's that brought it up. Doing I was commenting it. on your on your 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 chain of thought. Well, I don't want to give nobody free advertising. But if you want That's advertising, train robbery is what that is. We can give you some paid advertising. Just send us an email to uh, tftpodcast2018 at gmail dot com. I'm pretty sure it's just. Pod TFT pod 2018 at gmail.com. That's why you keep track of that. Send me money. Money, please. More money. The Mets would go on to finish the 1962 season with a record. Are you ready to hear the record? Because I know you've been waiting. I'm sure it's an absurdly low number. The record number. was 40 and 120. 40 wins, 120 losses. I guess that because that's usually how records work. Um, that's really bad. Yeah, they were one of the worst expansion teams in the history of sports. Which is funny because if you were to flip that the other way, you'd be like, this is one of the best teams ever Oh, yeah, that would be exist. like, they should all be in the Hall of Fame if they won 120 wins and 40 losses. But, um, yeah, uh, that's that's not, that's, that's no That good. record would be the worst record in baseball for the 20th century. Wow. However, even with that terrible record, they were technically far from a failure. When the Wait, so that's the 20th century. What year is the this? The 60s. This would be the 21st century now. Dang, that held up for like, 40 what, years. like 60 years? 40 years? Yeah, math. Not even So once. even though that they, they were that bad, they were actually not a failure. When the Dodgers... It sounds like they're pretty much a failure. Unless they were just like knocking off like, you know number one teams every once in a while, which in baseball, like beating one, like, you know, 80 or 90 win team doesn't really mean. Well, going back to where we started when the Dodgers and Giants left, you know, people were really divided and um, the people that hated the Yankees still hated the Yankees. So when the Mets showed up, they 
the Mets were able to kind of bridge that gap and start fixing the fractures in New York baseball because people had a new team to root for that was was likable. Like they sucked, but they were a likable team. So if you hated the Yankees, it was easy to jump on the Mets bandwagon because you had to assume that it was going to go up from there. And you had guys like Stengel and Throneberry who were very popular in the community. So they were the the lovable losers. They were the budget team in a way. So in a lot of ways, their roster strategy worked. They picked up players in the expansion draft that had big names in the New York market. Even if they were older, people still remembered them from when they played for their favorite teams or from being on the Yankees. And now they played for this like lower budget team that was just just trying to be be accepted. So... Were they picking up retired players or like literally like like in the way that the MLS picks up the uh, European kind of that way like people. people that could still play just older and not play as well just just not as good So this made them a very watchable team for the city of New York, New York. Um in fact the attendance averaged over 20,000 per game and people were ex- Dang, that's for a team that has that terrible a record, that's actually pretty yeah, good. Yeah, and the National League was very that was back in a big way in New York. So the next season the Mets were almost as bad. They won fifty one games that year. Well, you know, that's eleven eleven games that they didn't win the year before. Uh, the Mets didn't did not win over seventy three games until nineteen sixty nine. So they finished five hundred, um, twice and then in 1969 they won 100 games wow that's a that's a really big jump yeah that was the that was the the Mets year they ended up winning the World Series that year four to one over the Orioles okay well that's good you know you gotta you gotta beat the sandwich cookie name so Yankee oh you said yeah, Orioles. Orioles not the Orioles that was a bad joke. I, I'm so Yankees up. fans have always been proud of their teams, but now the rest of the city that had lost their teams had a new team that they could brag about because the Mets in 1969 were on top of the world. You know, why is it that the teams that are the best are the least likable and their fan bases also suck? Like, there's no redeeming qualities about the Yankees. There's no redeeming qualities about the I'll Patriots. Argue, I'll actually their argue fan bases the even suck. I've been to a Yankees game in Yankee Stadium, and the environment there is amazing. Like even if you hate the Yankees, being in that stadium with that fan base and rooting for like rooting for a good game will Every, make you inevitably like the Yankees. It's just so much fun. I'm. I mean, yeah, but then you see the people walking around like in South Texas, and they got their Yankees hat on, and they couldn't even tell you like who A-Rod was or some stuff like that. And it's like, okay, like it, it becomes a thing at some point to where they, be, the, it just becomes a brand and people just wear the stuff. And that's my problem with it. I mean, it's like that with the Patriots. Now it's like that with Alabama. Cause you got people like, I'm an Alabama fan. It's like, Oh really? Can you actually name anything about Alabama? And it's like, well, it's a state. Yeah. Well, bandwagon fans are terrible. Nobody likes bandwagon fans. Well, I mean, I'm I'm just saying, like, I guess there's there's the people in that region, but I just I have a problem with those teams that become larger than life, and that's I mean, and I'm I'm talking about like the Yankees, the um, the Patriots, the Cowboys. Uh, I don't know. There's probably some other ones thrown in there. Alabama. Um, I don't know. The Seahawks. Uh, the like, year they won the Super Bowl. Remember all these magical Seahawks fans that just popped up out of nowhere? 
Well, yeah, and then they've all like disappeared. You know, they they went like the Legion of Boom, and you know they just the all big vanished. Boom theory. Where did they go? To a terrible CBS. Show. Uh, to date, the Mets have a two and two record in the World Series with wins in 1969 and 1986. They lost to the Yankees in 2001, and then they lost to the Royals in 2013. So they've been successful recently. That's kind of. That is interesting. So they're in different divisions, yeah, right? Yeah, they, there was the 2001 Subway is. Series. They played each other in the World Series. That's pretty cool, though. Like, to imagine, I, you know, you can not like either team, but, like, to see, like, two teams in the same city play each other at that high a level, that's got to be pretty cool. Yeah, it was fun. I actually remember that World Series. That, that was makes a fun for, one. That, that makes, like, for a good environment, I think. Like, I, I'm trying to think of what other teams like probably the only teams that would really be that close to each other would probably be like what uh the redskins and uh the ravens would they probably be the closest or my geography bad (laughs) geography bad we got the chargers and the rams they could technically play in a super bowl one day Uh, yeah but i mean they don't count because you know the chargers the giants and the jets and living in the soccer stadium yeah but both of them need to do some work. I I, the I don't know. I would, really, and the I would be okay. With, I I would be okay with an all LA. Um, the Kings game, and the Ducks, uh, like Super Bowl, but I would not be okay with the all New York. Mostly just I don't know why. I'd, I just I don't like the Jets. I don't like the state of New York being successful in anything. I actually like the Jets way more than I like the Giants. See, I've always had like a weird random soft spot for the, the shut Giants. Shut your mouth. No, you shut your mouth. Now I have a little bit of a soft spot, but I'm starting to get tired tired of Odell and his weird-ass like George Michael earring and bleached hair and his hatred of fans and, and just inanimate objects in general. At any rate... To sum up this episode, I do want to say that we're going to have a sequel to it one day, and we're going to talk about the 1986 Mets with Doc Gooden and Drew Strawberry, uh, Daryl Strawberry, and Keith Hernandez because they have some stories. I knew Daryl Strawberry played for the Mets. And I one day, it. we can even debate who was the better Met, Strawberry or Throneberry. Probably Strawberry. Oh, yeah, he was definitely a better player. Yeah, no, it's yeah, not even I, a question. I, I, like I don't know much. I know much about it, but the fact that I knew debate who done. Is, yeah, no, the fact that I knew who the guy was, part of it had to do with his name being Strawberry, probably because, and also he had a lot of like. Uh, I think I remember hearing some like Keith Hernandez a while back, and it's like he had a lot of other issues too. Which we should just do a Daryl Strawberry one. Just don't tell me when you're gonna do it. Which I would probably know like five things about him. Anyway. Um, he wasn't the only one on that team that had some severe drug problems. Oh, was that was that all part of the yeah team? yeah? Just a little preview for it. Doc Gooden actually missed the World Series parade that year because he was strung out on a couch in somebody's apartment and didn't wake up in time to make it to the World Series parade. Like when you say strung out, you talking about like cocaine, yeah, like heroin, alcohol, anything that he could get his hands on. No, it was oh, I mean alcohol. it was cocaine and alcohol and he was like on a bender yeah and he he'd been on a bender after they won the world series then he woke up and realized that he had missed the world series parade and had to watch it from a couch 
how terrible like you have to feel after you do all that work to do that and then you just party too hard and you don't even make like how often do you get to be in a world random side story about doug Gooden. he had a comeback in his career and he was actually uh played for the astros and pitched in the first game in minute Maid stadium that was like the last game of his career that's pretty neat so that's doc Gooden. oh boy but anyway that's the story of the 1962 marvelous mets or amazing Mets, sorry, marvelous Marv played for the amazing Mets. That's uh, yeah, they were amazing, amazingly bad. Well, I retain none of that story. So if we talk about the Mets again, I probably won't remember anything other than Keith Hernandez and Daryl Strawberry. That's the '86 Mets. I, but I'm I'm still really surprised that they were. I don't know that that I just don't understand of anything that you said about this this Thornberry guy that that. He should be as popular. He was a cultural phenomenon. I'm trying to think even who he reminds me of in like modern days. That like they're just so mediocre, but everybody knows who they are. Also a Met. Yes, yeah, that's uh, that that actually is a very perfect description. But you know, I think Tim Tebow is just the college version of the high school quarterback that peaked too early. Well, he's not a quarterback anymore. He's an outfielder, and he plays for the Mets. Or is he an analyst? What is he actually? Who is what is Tim a Tim Tebow? Tebow? You know. Next week on Turdy for Turdy, we, we try to argue that. what is a Tim Tebow. Well, we just gotta pray, and God will tell us what a Tim Tebow is. I'm starting to kneel right now. Just do it on the train track. I'm starting to kneel, and I'm starting to mentally thank Demarius Thomas for making my career better than it should have been. <laughs> well now he's gonna he now he gets to make an actually good quarterback's career even better <laughs> all right well so any more thoughts on the 1962 mets by the way casey stangle uh has his number retired with the mets and is actually like in the ring of fame the manager he never had a winning season when he was there but he's so beloved that that they put him in the ring of honor it, just based on the handful of quotes you said from this man, he's a national treasure, and I am upset that I did not know who this guy was. Like, I just want to sit and and listen or like read a bunch of quotes he made. It's almost like, like a lot, like he's on the Steve Spur level of just like n- nonsense trash should we, talk. Should we do a bonus segment where I read some Stacy Stengel quotes real quick before we go? I'm okay with that. Yeah, I don't I don't see any like red-blooded American not liking that idea. Uh, all right, let's do it. These are just random out of context quotes because that's what I could find in a few short seconds. It's Casey Stengel said, "All right, everyone, line up alphabetically according to your height." <laughs> wow, that that actually took my brain like a second to actually comprehend. See that fella over there? He's 20 years old. In 10 years, he's got the chance to be a star. Now that fella over there, different guy, he's 20 years old too. In 10 years, he has the chance to be 30. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dang. I want to like, I want to add in that like, um, Dave Chappelle, like, uh, what was it, the Rick James stuff? Like, cold blooded. Oh my God, these two are winners too. 
the first, I'm going to read this one first, but he said the only thing worse than a Mets game is a Mets doubleheader while he was still a manager. <laughs> this is a team he's responsible for. <laughs> All right, and I want you to think about this one. Like, don't just laugh and not think about what this says because there's something to this, I swear. He says, The secret of successful managing is to keep the five guys who hate you away from the four guys who haven't made up their minds yet. That's really deep. Like, I don't know if that one's actually funny, but like, that's just like good managerial. I know, that's actually like, I'm like, hey, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's why they call him a manager, but uh, that was that, that's something you could talk about, like in a um, like a management seminar or something. That was a uh, that that you know that like that was that something. Uh, when you're younger, you get blamed for crimes you never committed, and when you're older, you begin to get credit for virtues you never possessed. It evens itself out. <laughs> That's also man. This guy—he's a quote machine. I just want—I want this guy to be my mentor. He makes like Mike Leach. Sometimes it's easier to understand things than it is to figure them out. (laughs) I want to laugh at that one, but it like makes my head (laughs) hurt. Oh man, this guy's like wise beyond. Oh, here's one of those like rambling ones that make no sense. Well, the fella I got on there is hitting pretty good, and I know he can make that throw. And if he don't make it, that other fella I got coming has shown me a lot. And if he can't, I have my guy, and I know what he can do. On the other hand, the guy's not around now. And, well, this guy may be able to do it against left-handers if my guy ain't strong enough. I know one of my guys is going to do it. Uh, what? Exactly. Um, oh, the trouble is not that players have sex the night before a game. It's that they stay out all night looking for it. <laughs> Damn. This dude went from like, this guy goes from like deep to like dementia. Rambling. Yes, it's so good. <laughs> He's like, he, like, I'm going to, I want to call him like the Socrates of the Socrates of baseball. But then he comes out here with like crazy like stumbling around like ramblings about nonsense they say that some of my stars drink whiskey but i found that the ones who drink milkshakes don't win many ball games (laughs) uh i don't uh that's that's a weird one okay a couple more this one says good pitching will always stop good hitting and vice versa sneaks up on you i will say that like i was like okay and then it took me about like a second and i was like okay that's amazing uh two more because i found another one i want to add all that analysis is well and good but what i need right now is a left-handed batter who can hit the ball over the shortstop's head uh where did that one go and we're gonna finish on this one here it is you have to draft a catcher because if you don't have one, the pitch will roll all the way back to the screen. <laughs> that one actually made me like not even laugh. I don't know if you heard that, but that made me go straight to groan <laughs> as opposed to like that was a dad laugh. joke. That was such a dad joke. That's 
Oh my god, that that's that was my favorite one, even though I know it's not the best one, just because it's it's just the smartest ass thing you could have said. The uh, like bonus. Like you have to have a catcher, otherwise the ball. We're will going into double bonus here. The way our luck has been lately, our fellows have been getting hurt on their days off. <laughs> and oh wow! And this finally, guy, the last I, one. Just uh, this is this is. I know, you said but that like some five times. So good. And I'm not this even is, upset. This is really the These last one. It's, I made up my mind, but I made it up both ways. Casey Stengel, everybody. That last one is is so great that it like it just makes you not even like I forgot to breathe for a second. I was like I don't even know what's going on anymore. So that was uh, Casey Stengel, maybe the greatest quoting manager to ever be in baseball. Yeah, uh, I mean, like I said, I'm not that well versed in baseball, but uh, I like this guy now. I like him more than like I like a lot of people. I I actually wanted to see if, like. I can find a whole book of his quotes. A quote of the day book by Casey Stengel. For a man to have this many quotes that you just stumbled across, this guy's got to have like a book's worth of quotes out there somewhere, and I'm I'm bound and determined to find them and read them all. Well, we're going to take the rest of this week off and come back next week, and while we're gone, maybe you can find that quote book. Nah, I probably won't. I'll forget about it as soon as we're done. All right. Well, everybody, that was another episode of Tardy for Tardy about the 62 Mets. Remember, you can always email us, tweet us, let us know how we're doing, tell us we suck. I don't care. Do what you want to do. But we'll uh, be back next week no matter what you say because you can't stop us. We'll be back next week with another episode. See you all later. Bye. Bye, 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 bye. Uh, I'm going to cut that out. That was bad. Or I'll leave it in and people will be like, what the hell is this man talking about? <laughs>